Hello and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trusts Handbook, and your host for this weekly look at all things to do with investment trusts. We are an independent organization, but to save the regulators from doing so, please let me remind you that this podcast is provided for information and educational purposes only, and nothing you hear from any of the speakers today should be regarded as constituting investment advice. Perish the thought. This week, we continue with our focus on the still unloved UK equity market as I'm joined by two experienced UK fund managers, James Dupper, the lead manager of the Edinburgh Investment Trust, EDIN. He's one of many investment professionals who cut their teeth working for Mercury Asset Management back in the 80s and 90s. And Stuart Widdison, manager of the Odyssean Investment Trust, ticker OIT. Edinburgh sits in the UK equity income sector, while OIT is in the UK smaller companies category. Despite UK equities looking extremely cheap relative to other markets, which has attracted a growing number of bids from other companies and private equity, witness this week's agreed takeover of Numis by Deutsche Bank, the latest figures for open-ended fund flows show that continued investor selling of UK equity funds in the first quarter of the year, a trend that's been going on for quite a long time. We discussed the question of what it will take for the UK market to start attracting investor as opposed to private equity or corporate demand again. Turning to markets generally this week, they continue to range without any clear sense of direction. As so often, it was a week of two halves with equities falling and bond yields rising at the start of the week, but both of those reversing direction in the second half. In terms of market performance, we also saw some reversal from the trend of the previous week, with European markets down a little while the US markets were up. The S&P 500 by a short 1% and NASDAQ a little over 1%. The FTSE 100 was down about half a percent, the all share a tad less, although AIM finally showed some signs of life after a long slump, helped by news perhaps of that agreed bid by Deutsche Bank for Nubis, the corporate broker. Oil, copper and gold were all down on the week, with gold also falling back slightly below the $2,000 an ounce level. There was little movement overall in bond or gilt yields. The Investment Trust Index, which tracks the performance of the 190-odd trusts in the FTSE All Share Index, was down on the week about 0.4%, with a roughly equal number of gainers and losers. The average discount held steady at around 15.5%. Prominent amongst the winners was Roundhill Music, the music royalty company, several commercial property trusts, the core infrastructure funds, and some private equity names, while social housing trusts, growth capital, and the tech trusts were among the bigger fallers. More details on the main movements in share prices, NAVs, and discounts can, as always, be found by subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle in our regular roundup on the Moneymakers website. There also you'll find this week's featured trust profile, which is of Biopharma Credit, the specialist debt lender. And we also take a deeper look at the 30-year performance of the 36 surviving trusts, which, as the AIC, the industry body, highlighted recently, predate the birth of the soon-to-be-crowned King Charles in 1948. Uh, Would you know which of these vintage trusts has the best share price performance over the past 30 years? You might be surprised by the answer, though here's a clue. We interviewed the manager of the trust earlier this month. Turning to the news, there's been a pickup in news and results from the investment trust sector this week, after a fairly quiet couple of weeks. On the corporate side, Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact, ticker TLEI, 
suspended its shares and delayed its 2022 annual report following what it called material uncertainty about the fair value of a 200 megawatt asset it has in India, where the company is facing higher construction costs and the project will need further equity. So we await more news about that, what that actually might involve, or when this particular issue might be resolved. Urban Logistics, ticker SHED, S-H-E-D, put out a circular which is proposing uh, management changes that will involve Pacific Group selling its interest in the current investment advisor and uh, that role being taken on by an independent company controlled by the existing name managers Richard Moffitt and Christopher Turner. The board says it's uh, been successful in securing the long-term services of those two and their colleagues which have been responsible for the performance of Urban Logistics since its IPO. Next Energy Solar, ticker NESF, announced proposals for a capital recycling plan. What it says it's going to do, it's going to divest a number of its subsidy-free UK solar assets and use the proceeds to reduce gearing under its uh, revolving credit facility to invest in its pipeline of new projects, which it says runs to around 500 million, and also establish a share buyback program if the shares remain on a discount to NAV. I think this is an interesting development. It's uh, reflecting the fact that uh, many renewable energy trusts are having to uh, take a look at their investment strategy now that most of the trusts in the sector have moved to a discount following the rise in bond yields. Uh, That means the uh, traditional path, or the path that's become traditional, I should say, over the the last few years of issuing new equity to uh, fund new projects is over for the time being and every trust is having to look at its balance sheet and its commitments and come to a sensible decision about how best to proceed in these new market conditions. What it means for Next Energy Solar is that it will be keeping just two of its seven original operational subsidy free assets and is committed to its strategy of moving further into battery storage in particular Uh, where it has development rights, among other projects, for a 250-megawatt lithium-ion battery storage project in the east of England. That's uh, one of the biggest projects in this uh, growing field. Uh, Elsewhere, we heard that Ashoka White Oak Emerging Markets narrowly managed to get its IPO away, becoming the first investment trust IPO since late 2021. But it was a narrow squeak. It only succeeded in raising $30 million in investor capital, which was well short of its $100 million target, but just above the minimum level specified in its prospectus as being necessary for the IPO to go ahead. Uh, the shares will begin trading on the 3rd of May with the ticker AWEM. Elsewhere, we heard that uh, Global Smaller Companies Trust, ticker GSCT, once known as uh, F&C Global Smaller Companies Trust, uh, is changing its benchmark. That's always a trigger, perhaps, to look at uh, why it's doing that and uh, what the uh, impact of that might be. You can find that on their website, obviously. Meanwhile, CBA Investments, ticker CBA, uh, not a trust I think that many investors are aware of, announced that it's agreed head of terms with Aberdeen, the UK fund manager, to internalise its investment management, with Sebastian Berger, the lead manager, moving over to CBA as CEO of the trust. This is a small trust market capitalisation, about £50 million, and the board says that this move will save management costs of $1.2 million a year. 
this trust, which, as I say, is off the radar of most people, trades at a discount of more than 50%, and the board says it's hoping to take some steps to eliminate that. Turning to results, we had annual figures from Third Point Investors, ticker TPOU, the hedge fund trust led by Dan Loeb in the U.S., who, regulators may remember, had a noisy run-in with a number of its shareholders two years ago, uh, leading to a number of board changes and a commitment by the trust to take some steps to reduce its persistent wide discount, which had reached out to around 30% before this uh, activity began. That program has had some success with the discount coming in from 30% to the current level of around 15% and has been uh, narrower than that. But unfortunately, the uh, results last year were not particularly good. I think it's fair to say uh, NAV total return minus 24.4% against the 17.7% decline in the MSCI World Index on an equivalent basis. So really a poor year of performance by uh, third-point investors. The trust has repurchased 2 million shares and also launched an interesting exchange offer as part of those discount measures, which was fully subscribed at the $75 million limit. Effectively, uh, investors were offered the chance to switch from their shareholding in the investment trust into the master fund uh, run by third-point investors. And they could get out at uh, the exchange was completed at NAV minus 2%. So that was well taken up. And the board has promised two more tenders of a similar nature expected in 2024 and 2027. If the shares at that point are still trading on a discount wider than 10% and 7.5% respectively for those two target dates. It's interesting that the share count this investment trust has nearly halved since 2018 as a combination of these exchange offers and buybacks. But the discount still remains fairly stubbornly at, as I said, around 15%. In terms of what uh, Mr Loeb had to say, he said that the portfolio of this trust was increasingly progressing towards capital preservation mode, uh, with the net equity exposure down from 67% in January 2022, i.e. the start of last year, to 25% at the end of the year. Obviously, most of the damage to the trust's performance came in the first quarter of 2022 uh, and prompted that rethink. Clearly, the trust got the markets wrong at that point. The master fund in which the company invests is tilting towards more concentrated investment exposures, where its traditional strengths lie, which it says means focusing on classic value, event-driven and activism strategies. In fact, the trust's activism exposure has risen from approximately 15% to almost 40% of its gross equity exposure over the course of the financial year. And the investment manager says it also expects that credit opportunities will present themselves as tighter credit conditions persist into the current year. Much better news, though, from Roundhill Music Royalty, ticker RHM, which, as I said earlier, was one of the best performing trusts this week. This follows the news uh, that it's reported its annual results for 2022, showing uh, NAV total return of 13%. The board says that it's now fully deployed the money it raised at IPO and now owns 51 uh, different catalogues of music, 120,000 songs in total. And its dividend of uh, 4.5 cents is 98% covered. The yield on that one, incidentally, is currently around 7% uh, as the shares still trade on a big discount, which has been out as wide as 50%.
Baker Steel Resources, specialist commodity investor, by contrast, saw its NAV per share fall by 19.3% in 2022, which I would have to say is a more than disappointing result when compared to its benchmark, which produced a positive total return of 10.2% over the year. Uh, Commodities obviously did particularly well in the early part of 2022 following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But for Baker Steel Resources, the trust said that the Russian invasion of Ukraine had made it increasingly difficult to finance junior mining developments, given the risk-off phase that followed the Ukraine invasion. Uh, The shares in this particular trust also stand at a very big discount, ending the year last year at 44%. Uh, and the board said that there were unfortunately insufficient funds to allow it to repurchase shares. And the market capitalization of Baker Steel Resources has fallen to just £50 million. Meanwhile, in the renewable energy sector, Aquila European Renewables, ticker AERS, reported that it has now fully invested uh, following its IPO, and the board is proposing to increase the dividend by 5% and expects continued high dividend cover over the next five years. It is, however, waiting for news about an arbitration case involving one of its projects, and another one where it is involved in a negotiation to protect reindeer in an area where it is planning another investment. That trust has a continuation vote in June 2023 which will be interesting. That was the result of investor pressure concerned at the slow rate of deployment initially uh, by this trust following its IPO. Also reporting was MB Private Equity, the large private equity trust, which reported a NAV total return of minus 7.5%, which compared well against the world index decline of 17.7%, already mentioned, but not so well against the UK FTSE All Share uh, which was roughly flat over the year, as we know. MB Private Equity says that the uh, performance was mainly reflected the decline in the value of its listed holdings and foreign exchange effects. Dunedin Enterprise, ticker DNE, another private equity trust, which is in wind down, reported a NAV total return of positive 21.7% against uh, its benchmark down 17% as well. The trust has completed a further £37 million in realisations and uh, distributed £41 million following a tender offer in November. So it's well on the way to achieving its uh, wind down and net assets there remain at just £34 million. Also results from RM Infrastructure Income, ticker RMII, which is a infrastructure debt trust which reported a NAV total return of 5%, though in per share terms the NAV was down 20%. Also results from Aberdeen Property Income, ticker API, in the commercial property sector, currently yielding around 7% and trading on a discount in the mid-30s. Its NAV total return last year was 12.8%. It bought back 12 million shares and reported that its 4P dividend was covered to the extent of 73% by income, but 97% if you excluded non-recurring items. It's cutting its fee by 10 basis points. And there were also results from Vietnam Enterprise Investments, ticker VEIL, which had a poor year, unfortunately, NAV minus 35.7%. Though that was not out of line with the performance of the main Vietnamese index. VEIL has bought back $61 million of its shares in an attempt to bring its discount in, though that also remains well over 10% in the current 
climate. Finally, in terms of annual results, we heard from MNG Credit Income, which saw a NAV total return of minus 1.7%, which was uh, unfortunately not as good as its benchmark's 5.5% performance. The trust said the result was due to widening credit spreads, but it's continuing to move into more private assets. 57% of its portfolio at the year end was in unlisted debt. It, however, said that it did not see any systematic risk in banking despite the crisis in March surrounding the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse takeover. It said that, in its view, that crisis was triggered by fear and idiosyncratic risk rather than by any deterioration in the fundamentals of the banking sector. Turning to interim results and updates, well, there are several of these. I won't go through them all in detail, though perhaps worth highlighting the interims from Fidelity's Special Values, uh, ticket FSV, which is managed by Alex Wright. It has a February year-end, not a, not a December year-end, and over that period its NAV total return was positive, 10.4%, against the 8.7% gain for the all-share index. Uh, just underlining again that when it comes to annual results, the date you happen to choose for your year-end can have a significant uh, impact on whether those figures are positive or negative. Alex Wright said that he believes the UK market, with its high dividends and low valuations, offers better prospective returns than many other asset classes, including global equities. That's a subject we'll come back to shortly. And it's also the trust there is in proposing a 10% increase in the interim dividend. Henderson Far East Income, ticker HFEL, is probably also worth a mention. Its performance was negative 4% versus a 4.5% performance of its benchmark. It highlighted the fact that its option writing generated income, and it currently yields around 9%. We also heard from Asia Dragon Trust, ticker DGN, which has an NAV total return of minus 7.2%. It's a little bit ahead of its benchmark. This is another trust that's been repurchasing shares and said it was hopeful about China's reopening and suggests that earnings downgrades in Asia, ex-Japan, are close to bottoming. Well, we shall see about that. Uh, there are also updates from uh, Literacy Capital, ticker BOOK, this interesting private equity trust where the NAV per share was up 11.1% among the better performances in the private equity sector. Uh, it said it had a £21 million cash inflow in the first quarter and is monitoring the discount closely. Well, it has actually moved back pretty close to par now following its uh, efforts to close the discount gap. We also heard from Pantheon, ticker PIN, first quarter NAV decline of 1.5%, uh, mostly due to FX losses, it said. In the commercial property sector, we had updates from a number of trusts including AEWUK, NAV total return of 2.4% in the first quarter. This is a trust that's notable because it's the only commercial property trust that did not cut its dividend during the pandemic. CT Property Trust, ticker CTPT, reported a similar NAV total return of 2.4% for the first quarter. Though there, the dividend is still below the pre-pandemic levels. And given the size of the trust... One of the brokers noted this year said it might raise some questions about the fund's relevance. Is it big enough to survive as an independent company? That's a big issue, I think, for the whole commercial property sector following the re-rating that we saw, particularly in the second half of last year. 
Impact Healthcare, on the other hand, Specialist Property Trust, reported a first quarter NAV total return of 3.7% and is raising its target dividend. Again, currently yields uh, in the region of 6.5-7%. That brings us to the end of the news and results segment of the podcast. And we return to talking about the UK equity market. This week, I was uh, very happy to be able to catch up with James Dapper, who is the CEO and founder of Majedi Asset Management, which was uh, recently sold not so long ago to uh, Lion Trust, the listed uh, fund management company. For this purpose, why we're talking is because Majedi Asset Management and uh, James himself is the manager of the Edinburgh Investment Trust, an investment trust which uh, they took over the running of just over three years ago from Invesco Perpetual, which had many years uh, had that trust, but uh, run into some tricky times uh, just before you took over. But talking about tricky times, you took over this trust in uh, March 2020, which uh, uh, perhaps at the time didn't seem like (laughs) the perfect time to be taking on a a new investment trust mandate, as it was in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic breaking out and uh, we were heading for lockdown. But in fact, it's worked out very well. So Tell us first about your experience in taking over the trust, what you thought at the time and uh, how it's gone since then. Well, thanks, Jonathan. If I was a little bit pedantic, I'd almost drop the word perhaps, because if we think back to that time, you had that odd feeling in the pits of your stomach, actually, at that phase. But actually, in retrospect, and it's a good lesson for everyone, really, in retrospect, actually, when the news is bad, it's a good time to be investing. And It was end of March 2020, as you rightly say, the teeth of COVID. We're all decamping to our homes to work from home. We weren't sure how it's all going to work. We were using an expert reorganizer to do the trust. And we at the team set about reorganizing it. And actually, it was a very good discipline, frankly. And there have been a lot of chapters over COVID and as we emerge. But, you know, the proof point is that we've hit the three-year mark as a team at Lion Trust, and the numbers, you know, the numbers are pretty respectable against, you know, not only the all share, but also our peer group. And what we're really looking to do is is provide a sort of compelling total return for investors. Okay, so you're the trust, uh, Edinburgh Investment Trust does sit in the UK equity income sector. But I think it's fair to say, if you look at the sort of the main competitors, if you like, you offer a slightly lower yield than than the others. You're putting more emphasis on total return rather than income, I suppose. Way to say. But tell us first of all. So, what did you do immediately once you took over the trust, with the kind of markets going into free fall and a lot of genuine fear out there? How quickly were you able to change the portfolio, uh, given that uh, there was perhaps not as much liquidity at the time as you might have wished? Perhaps there's too well, much liquidity. <laughs> I don't know. There was a reasonable amount of liquidity. And we were using, you know, as you expect in these instances, a professional reorganizer of trust, one of the sort of market leaders. And they're able to access liquidity. I think the secret sources, if you like, we as a team, as was then Majedi, now Lion Trust, Global Fundamental Team, have a team who worked together for a long time. We have models of what we think companies are 
uh, capable of. Obviously, at that point in time, there's a lot of work on liquidity analysis and the like. We were talking to companies all the time. But we were very clear about the valuations that we were looking for in companies. And so, you know, in our purchases and sales, it felt okay, if I'm honest, because we had a pretty clear compass on valuation at that point. And the major transactions that we made were reasonable. I mean, I think one of the key mistakes you could have fallen into at that stage was to get catatonically bearish. We didn't do that. We realized that a virus needs host and in the end, if you like, burns out to a degree. And so we were careful not to get too bearish. We structured the fund in a diversified, risk-controlled way with multi-themes. And over most of the chapters of COVID, you know, the fund had performed pretty well in relative and absolute terms. And if I just come back to one other point, Jonathan, you made in terms of the dividend yield, because I think it's a really interesting point. You make a point which is correct, that actually, you know, the starting dividend yield of the trust is not peer leading. But what I would say to you is what we're looking to offer share owners, including myself, is you know, a very compelling total return comprising both dividend income and capital return. And actually, if we get the total return equation right, actually, whether the starting yield is 3.9 or 4.5, actually pales into insignificance compared to that total return angle. Yes, of course, I take that point entirely. But you, you were starting from where you were starting from, as it were. So the performance to date has been good, as you say, over the three-year period. That's beaten the uh, index by a significant margin, which is excellent news. How much of that though, was due to those prices you were able to get at the very beginning of your tenure as fund manager when the market had obviously sold off quite dramatically? You were able to get in at a good price. Did that give you a competitive advantage, in fact, in terms of the peer group who perhaps weren't as active as you were forced to be? I think at the margin, yes. So if I look at the attribution analysis... One of the biggest sectoral contribution with the likes of NatWest and other banks was the banking sector. And I think many investors' knee-jerk reaction at that stage was to sell the banks at any price. We took a more measured response to that. And so the prices we paid for the likes of NatWest at that point were, in retrospect, very attractive. Another share, which I think is a good illustration of what was going on at the time, is Weir. So Weir, as you know, is, if you like, a mining technology group, very interesting on a huge number of angles. But for many investors, crunching their liquidity analysis at that point, it had leverage that was, if you like, a little bit spicy. But we realized through our analysis that by selling their shale business, which was a peach of a business, which they subsequently did actually to Caterpillar at a good price, that that problem could be solved in a nanosecond. Perhaps an exaggeration to say nanosecond, but you know it was solvable, if that makes sense. So it's an example where simple screening perhaps doesn't give you the answer you need in that instance was something of a crisis. And I think it's also a good illustration of what is now the Lion Trust GFT team, then Majedi. You know, we were a team that worked together for a long time. We knew each other's zones of expertise. As we decamped to work from home, actually, it was a really, we got a real buzz out of trying to sort of 
put the puzzle together, if you like, in terms of what we needed to do. Another thing I've noticed since you took over, compared to the, the way that the trust was managed before, is uh, you have reduced the gearing quite significantly, I think, to compared to what it was, which has accentuated the losses they made earlier. What is your strategy about gearing? You have potential, I think, to go up to 25%, but you, you're nowhere near that at the moment. Is that a, something which you use tactically, or is it something which you're going to stay around those kind of levels most of the time? And in this particular market environment, is the low-level gearing reflecting some views about where we are in the market cycle? So the gearing angle, I think, is very interesting because, you know, as a investment trust guru, you will know that most investment trusts took out debentures when interest rate structure was a very different level. And Edinburgh Investment Trust was one of those. So what the board decided to do back in 2021 was to, if you like, refinance those debentures, which were had a seven handle. Uh, to the new levels, which are much, much more attractive. So what we managed to do was refinance 120 million of debentures. We've got 120 million of debentures. And that we've taken out at a weighted average price of 2.44%. So if you think about that, that's an incredibly low level set for the trust for the next, on average, 25 years. So it's really strategically, that's a massive positive for the trust, because it means really any gearing we have, the hurdle rate for our return is 2.42% effectively. And we're going to use that most of the time in full. Now, your point about gearing being lower than in the previous manager, part of that is the reality that obviously the trust assets have gone up quite substantially. So gearing is obviously a ratio. So it's more that than um, a specific decision on the level of absolute debt, if that makes sense. Yes, but if the hurdle you've got to beat is 2.5% or something, and you were positive about the market you're operating in or the companies you're buying, you might think you might be doing a little bit more than that, notwithstanding the, the point that you made about the relative size of the trust. Yeah, so I think, you know, those points are well made. What we've got is, as I say, a decent chunk of debt set at a prudent level, which we are most of the time using in full. If we were to go to the market now for extra debt, for example, just hypothetically, it would obviously, given the interest rate structure has moved up a bit, be at a high level. Okay, so I'm interested to know what your thoughts are about managing an investment trust. Are you a fan of investment trust? I mean, do you actually think it is a better way to manage a fund or would that be putting the rest of your business in a dark shade, so to speak? What are the advantages as you see them from managing an investment trust as opposed to an open-ended fund? I think the advantages are obviously it's closed end, which has advantages in terms of structure. You can potentially, if you wish, invest with more certainty in some holdings with a little less liquidity. I would also say that the debt structure, if used appropriately, is a massive positive. And I've just talked about that as being a positive, frankly, for the next couple of decades, really, for Edinburgh. The thing which I've really, you know, inevitably, one learns on the job on these things. But, you know, I would say from my experience of investment trust, I would say the governance angle, the board and the like is a real positive over the long term because... The board, I think, have the right balance of 
oversight and questioning and support for a manager. And I've become quite a convert, actually, for investment trusts. I think it's a slightly esoteric subject because obviously nowadays many wealth managers, for well-known reasons, want more elastic sources of liquidity, which unit trusts or, or OIT structures provide. But I think that does not detract from investment trusts. And if we think about Edinburgh just through the lens of that at the moment, I mean, the way I think about it is that you've got exposure to a cheap market on a discount, if that makes sense, with a decent source of governance. So I think of it as a sort of double discount, if you like. So if chosen appropriately, I think investment trusts can be very, very interesting. Well, let's talk briefly about the UK then, the market. We know that the FTSE 100 has performed very well over the last 15 months or so. Well, uh, the small cap and mid cap has suffered a lot, as have the other markets around the world uh, in many cases. A lot of people think that the UK market is cheap, and you presumably share that view. But what do you think is going to be the catalyst that's actually going to make the UK perform better in relative terms over the next, say, few years? The way I think about it is that the UK equity market has absorbed a lot. Brexit, politics, pension scheme selling, wealth manager and retail selling as they move international. But the other side of the equation is that corporates are buying in large amounts. So if I look at the trust, you know, 40% of the trust's holdings by value are or have done in the last year, pretty substantial share buyback programs. We're also seeing corporate activity. So you may have seen today, for example, a Deutsche Bank has made an offer for Numis, which you know doesn't speak like people giving up on the UK equity market. So it's an interesting one because your question is, is there a catalyst? And I would say to you, sometimes markets move up on reduced selling, if that makes sense, rather than a Pandora event. And I think we're in that phase where the news is less bad, the selling will reduce in intensity, and actually people will just be surprised where prices end up. And as you rightly say, the FTSE 100, many of the negatives which were seen to drag the market down. So basically, there was too many international energy companies, too many mining companies, too many banks. If you think about what those are now, we need actually energy security, tick in the box. We actually need copper if we're going to transition, tick in the box. And banks, well, banks actually not only, I think, are a purveyor of good, if you think about what they did in COVID, but also, actually, I would say, obviously, they're making money from both sides of the balance sheet at the moment. And the net result is that, you know, the dividend flow is pretty good. So, you know, I would say to you that the UK market could, and in my view, probably will continue to quietly surprise people. Before we talk about what you've actually done with the portfolio of the trust, perhaps you might just comment on this question, which often comes up about investment style. Do you have an investment style? And if so, a lot of people say that we're going to move from an era when growth has dominated towards one in which value, however you want to choose to determine, that is going to do relatively better. And whatever else you say about the FTSE, you have to say uh, at the moment looks like pretty much a value index. There are some obviously growth companies in there. How would you define your style? And is that going to become a significant factor in the pattern of returns we see uh, over the next medium term? Well, we like to think of ourselves as flexible investors, which basically means that what we like to do is think about, you know, the valuation that appears at a time, 
and pick a mix of growth and value shares depending on the environment. So if I think about you know, shares we bought in the last six months, Halion, that would be a growth share. And then in terms of value shares, one I've also bought or added to the likes of Centrico, classic value share. So not dogmatic on a particular style. In terms of your question on is value going to trump growth, I would say to you that growth has obviously had a long run really pretty much since the GFC, for all the obvious reasons. We've now obviously got a period where actually we're entering a period of probably slightly higher stubborn inflation. So in nominal terms, growth is going to become perhaps less scarce. I think many of the value and cyclical sectors have actually seen much of the competition, if you like, disappear or reduce in intensity. So returns are often increasing for some of the more capital intensive industries. So that's another positive. The other thing which I'm sort of grappling with, and I'm sure everyone in the market is grappling with, but I think it's quite an interesting angle for value, is that actually, if you think about one of the issues for the UK and some other markets is productivity has been in the doldrums, hasn't it? There's been a lot written on that. And actually, if you think about some of the more recent advances in technology, you know, AI, ChatGPT, all these sort of things, it seems reasonable that one of the major applications of these exciting newish technologies are obviously going to be in process industries or routine pieces of work. Those sort of innovations or use of that can actually accrue to all companies, if you like. So actually, the incremental return for companies that are classed as value could be just as great as those accrued as growth, if you like. So if you push me with the caveat that I'm a flexible investor, so I choose from both, it seems reasonable, given the valuation starting points, that value could have the edge on growth for a period. In terms of how you implement that then, I mean, obviously, the UK equity income sector in the investment trust universe is a very interesting one and quite a competitive one. There are quite a lot of big trusts, uh, well-established trusts with long track records, some dividend heroes in there and so on. If I was to say to you, what's the kind of special source that you're bringing to this particular competitive group? How would you answer that? It's interesting how how different the portfolios of the biggest uh, UK equity income trusts actually look. I was surprised. I looked through the top tens, how different some of them are to what you're doing and to each other. But uh, what would you say is the special source? Yeah, I think the special source is I'm obviously um, the lead manager on this trust, but I work with a team. We've worked together for a, a long old time. We spend our days really picking apart the sort of the market structures of the, and the market positions of the companies we invest in. We're meeting management. The valuation and fundamental analysis that we do, I think, is good. And I really, really think that over this next three, four, five years, one of the key angles one has to be in is be in market share winners. One of our major themes in the trust is this thought that corporate structure is going to be incredibly Darwinian in terms of the market share accruing to the number ones and number twos. And then I think one also has to have as an intelligent interpretation of ESG as an overlay, because I think ESG as a concept is a very sort of living being. One really has to be very careful not to think of it in a rear view mirror type way. 
And I think in terms of how we've structured the trust, we're very aware of that. So, for example, the likes of Standard Chartered, I would anticipate in over the medium term could be seen as a really interesting conduit, frankly, for green finance in the emerging markets. Now, you don't see a lot of that written in brokers' reports. So it's really trying to think about how companies are going to be perceived and what the corporate performance will be on a three to five year view. So obviously, you continue to invest in uh, oil companies and, and mining companies, and that's all part of your process. But I noticed among the changes, if you talk about some of the things you've changed in the portfolio over the last year, shall we say, or more recently, perhaps, in terms of your overweights and underweights, you're underweight in uh, Rio Tinto, you're underweight in Glencore, so two of the big mining companies, you're underweight in BATS, uh, presumably, I don't know whether that's a ESG issue or not. And you're also underweight in Diageo. Those seem to be among the sort of bigger names you have. Is any of that predicated on what's happening in the commodities market and whether that's a good place to be? Or is it just the result of your valuation processes or ESG processes? Each of those are a little different. I mean, the way I think about the miners is of the major metals that scarce, it's copper. And, you know, basically we need the 22 or so more K of echo. So we have Anglo-American because if I look at its production profile over time, copper is going north. And that's what you want in a miner. Think what Glencore's trying to do with tech. What they want is copper. This is number one, number two, and number three on a mining company's agenda at the moment, copper. Iron ore is not scarce. Rio Tinto was a company that we had for the first 12, 15 months of the trust we took some amazing dividends out of it, actually, in reality, because that was the stage where, you know, the specials were flowing and the like. But iron ore, obviously, Rio's has had its, its problems with Pilbara. It managed it too hot. And also, iron ore, to a degree, is quite dependent on China construction and the like, and, you know, I'm a little bit nervous about that. We're a little bit nervous about that. So Rio's is not top of our pick. And Glencore, with its coal exposure, again, is not top of the pick. Because I think what we're going to see over time, and it's difficult to know exactly how it's going to play out, but green steel is coming through. There's going to be a premium for green steel in terms of the production of that. So within the mining sector, we have... Anglos and mining technology we have Weir. Okay. And so in terms of the things where you're overweight or you've made significant relative bets at least, tell us about those and uh, what in particular, if any, you've been adding to those positions uh, recently. So we've got quite a big exposure to the defence industry, the likes of BAE Systems. So the way we think about that is that Obviously, uh, the events of Ukraine and more medium term, uh, the rising geopolitical tensions in and around Taiwan are meaning that defence spending uh, medium term is going one way in major countries from Japan, Germany, Poland, you name it, it's going one way. BAE Systems has a very broad order book spread over air, land and sea. It's deep in terms of quantum and, as I say, very long. So if you think about things like the Tempest Next Generation Fighter or indeed the nuclear power subs that are being designed for Australia, these are very long duration projects. And obviously the the short term angle is obviously the quantity of 
uh, a product also needed for Ukraine. And, you know, the rating to us for this type of duration seems relatively low. At the other end of the spectrum, perhaps in terms of a value share, if you like, is Centrica. So Centrica is another big holding for us. There you have a business which has obviously been under the cosh for some time, but actually the last 18 months to two years, it's obviously seen a dramatic change in market structure as Ofgem has quite rightly, in my view, recalibrated the rules for new entrants. And that and the combination of the change in the gas price, where Centrica, the British gas operation, has these very long duration contracts, means profitability is very, very strong in the short term. But actually also more medium term, if you think about us needing to transition, we need to effectively phase out boilers, get heat pumps in and the like. And actually, you know, Centrica, the British gas engineer, is going to be a big driver of that. And then more medium term, what we've also got is Centrica's a you know a good purveyor of energy optimization, if you like. And the interesting thing about this, and you know, is true of many UK companies, frankly, you know, what they're doing is they're looking to buy in just under 10% of their equity, 550 million pounds worth of their equity on a market cap of approximately 6 billion. And that is very enhancing because the earnings in the last year were in excess of 30 pence. This year, they'll be in excess of 20 pence. So actually, it's very, very enhancing to buy in shares at this sort of level. And, you know, those are two examples of shares where we have quite big positions in the portfolio. Okay, well, let me then ask you about your ambitions for the trust and uh, the board's ambition for the trust. Obviously, uh, as a firm now, your firm has been taken over by Lion Trust, which is now managing the trust, if you say. And Lion Trust have quite a good reputation, I think, for growing businesses. There's a limit to what you can do in investor trust. But one thing you could do would be to try and eliminate the discount and get back to uh, trading around par in an ideal world. And obviously, uh, someone like City of London has been churning out new equity in, in the last few months on the back of his track record. What are your ambitions for the trust itself in that context and, and with particular reference to the discount? You know, when we took over the trust, it was on a, a low teens discount. That was obviously very uncomfortable. But we'd managed collectively to move in the discount to its approximate level of about 7%. We've now reached the sort of three-year proof point, if you like, where the numbers are good. And we are looking to broaden the message. And, you know, being part of Land Trust is a very big positive there because Land Trust in the UK does have, as you know, a, a very good sales distribution network. And so by effectively meeting people and spreading the message to move the discount in. And what you'll also note from the RNSs is that, you know, the board has sanctioned what I would describe as gentle buybacks at various points. Uh, so I think I'm right in saying approximately 3% of the equity has been bought back in the last sort of 12 or so months. And, you know, that's not uncommon in the investment trust sector, as you know. 
Indeed it's not. Can I ask you then, finally, James, to just give us some comment about, uh, we've talked about the UK market in overall terms. What are your feelings about the UK uh, as a country to invest in, in terms of, you know, the politics and taxation regimes and all those sort of things that we could talk about? And in particular, what might happen to the pound over the next uh, two or three years? And how would that impact trust and what you're doing? No, absolutely. So, so politics, let's say we're having this interview in, let's say, Boston or somewhere like that. I think many a global investor would have quite a negative view on UK politics. But I would say that's quite sort of backward looking and it's scarred by Brexit, the trade arrangements, how it's going to trade, the trustonomics. If you think about the economist covers that were put in the second half of last year, comparing the UK to Italy, et cetera, et cetera. You know, now, if you think about what we have, obviously, we've got an election coming up in 2024. I think both major parties are probably less extreme than they were. Politics has become a bit more centrist. Economic policies become a bit more centrist. And I think that's good. I think the change at the SNP is also something that's relevant, dare I say it. The Windsor framework is also relevant, dare I say it. So politics in my view, is healing. That will take a bit of time to come through. I think the pulse of corporate activity, and, you know, I come back to what Deutsche Bank buying Numis today, you know, I think that speaks volumes, basically, about now cast views on the UK. So I don't think we should sort of beat ourselves up on that. In terms of sterling, so sterling is now flat year on year. And I think sterling actually has the probability of moving higher, particularly probably against the dollar. We're not setting a portfolio structure on that basis, frankly. But if you think about politics healing, if you think about economic activity in the UK improving relative to expectations, all these are quite positives. And then if you think about purchasing power parity relative to the dollar, you know, our inflation rates been pretty similar, frankly, to the US over the last 20 plus years. So if you accept that as one of the sort of big drivers on purchasing power parity, it seems not impossible that sterling could move up to the sort of the 140 type level. So, you know, for choice, we think sterling has a bias upwards, but, you know, we're not setting the Edinburgh Investment Trust's portfolio structure purely on that, if that makes sense. But it is something we think about. Thank you very much, James, for sharing your thoughts on the markets and on the trust which, as I said at the beginning, has recently uh, notched up its third year under this new management team. Well, not new management team, but new to this particular trust. Thank you, James, and uh, hopefully we'll talk again in due course. Thank you, Jonathan. Well, having discussed the uh, outlook for the UK equity market more broadly, in particular with reference to equity income, I thought I'd follow it up by uh, having another quick chat with Stuart Widdison, who is the manager of the Odyssean Investment Trust which is in the smaller companies sector and pursues a very different strategy, looking for opportunities not only to own, but also to uh, assist management in turning companies around or making them better for the future. So a few days ago, you had a webinar talking about the uh, performance of the trust and how you looked at the end of uh, Q1 this year. And uh, well, for the first time since I've been speaking to you anyway, you had a, a bit of a blip in this quarter, I think it's fair to say. The uh, NAV total return was down, particularly because of one issue at one company, which we'll talk about in a moment. 
But in terms of how the strategy is going and what you think about the way that the market's developed in the first four months of the year, what are your thoughts on that at the moment, uh, Stuart? Well, I think, as you mentioned, John, I think it was a bit of a frustrating quarter because Ed and I, whenever we review the portfolio, there's lots of good things going on the companies that we own. And we think they're very, very attractively priced and have a lot of things that can help themselves grow value, even in a pretty unsupported market. We were also beneficiary of M&A again in the quarter uh, with another one of our portfolio companies, in this case, Hive, being bid forward a 50% premium, which has subsequently been increased again. So, you know, there are lots of positive things going on. As you mentioned, we were hit by one individual stock, which unfortunately had a profit warning right on the last day of the quarter. And typically when that happens, particularly in the last day of the quarter, there can be a bit of an overreaction in the share price. So, again, it was a bit of a, an unfortunate quarter of two or three steps forward and four steps back. Um, but fundamentally, you know, we think it's a really interesting in- environment at the moment. UK actors look really cheap. And I think one of the things we have talked about before, John, a lot of that's been impacted by investor sentiment towards UK actors, particularly UK small mid-cap actors, which are still deeply unloved unless you're a bidder. Indeed. And of course, the fact that they're unloved is what creates the opportunity for people to come in and bids and, and make a bid at a premium of whatever it may be. This week, we've seen a bid for Numis from Deutsche Bank, which is an interesting development. And that's at a, a substantial premium. The share price has rocketed up by about two thirds, I think, uh, by about 65%, something like that. But they're still trading below uh, their all time high. So uh, even though that's a sort of short term game for the shareholders, it's not necessarily uh, a windfall for those who've been around for a while. What evidence is there that sentiment towards the UK market might be changing? I mean, what's the evidence from uh, fund flows, for example? Um, the fund flows this year for open-ended funds are still very poor. I mean, we if you look at the UK small companies open-ended sector, last year it had around 8% redemptions, which is the highest it's been for a very long time. So 8% of all funds were redeemed by the clients, which is about £1.5 billion. This year, we went into the year hoping that that redemption sort of flurry would basically abate. And very disappointingly, the first two months of the year and also Numis's estimate of March indicate that outflows are continuing at the same pace. Actually, not just for UK small mid-cap equities, but also for all-cap equities, even net of inflows into passive funds. So there are still marginal sellers around the market rather than marginal buyers. Within one of our portfolios, fascinating situation, a company called Essential, which is a relatively new holding. This is a bottom-end FTSE 250 company that we purchased last year, about 850 market cap. It actually announced uh, one of its problems has been over the last year, one of its biggest investors is a well-known fund with material outflows, and they've been forced sellers. And in January, the company was so upset about the impact on its share price and, and, and the valuation, it's decided to break the business up into three bits. And we felt the breakup value was somewhere between three fifty and four pounds fifty a share. The shares were trading at two pounds prior to the announcement. After the announcements, the shares spiked up to two seventy five, two eighty. So still a big gap between that share price and where we think the breakup value is. But they've trended back down and hit two pounds thirty five, two pounds forty over the last couple of weeks. And the reason is, even though there's a big catalyst in place. Even though the valuation is material above the share price, there are still people on the register that are forced to go and sell because their clients are taking their money out of their funds. We thought some of this might be concern about the interest that the company that Essential might have in its first asset, which is auctioning a company called WGSN. 
we met with the chief executive a week and a half ago and they had since they announced the sale of that company they've had 96 expressions of interest to buy that division and we think it will go for a, maybe even a billion pounds 96 people want to buy that company of which they've taken just over 40 through into a proper process there are only 10 material shareholders in the public company right <laughs> i mean it's it's just so ironic and you know you speak to the chief exec and over the last 6 months he said, we're one of only two UK institutions buying the shares when they're very depressed. All the other buyers, North American institutions. So they've just seen no buying interest from UK investors in their shares at the moment, regardless of valuation. So it's just a fascinating dichotomy of the difference in the way that private markets are valuing businesses and public markets are. Yeah. I mean, this is not immediately relevant to what you do on a daily basis, but, but do you think this is pointing to some specific issues about the UK equity market? I mean, the structure of the UK equity market. Or is it just supply and demand? I mean, is regulation a factor? We've had this de-equitization going on. And, you know, the UK market is now pretty small in global uh, portfolios. Do you think there is a structural problem here? And if so, you know, that may stand in the way of getting the kind of recovery that you've been talking about. Well, I think reading around this, there's commentary about how IPOing in the UK is is more onerous than other countries. And as you know, there's been a review of the prospectus rules as well to make once you're on the market, raising acting more, more easy. But I think there's an issue about the depth of investor appetite in the UK. And it's not just the regulation, it's also things like pension funds. So you know, when I originally started quote equity investing, most of the big UK pension funds had decent allocations towards UK equities and particularly UK small caps. They just don't play in that market anymore. And as you know, the proportion of equities held by a lot of these DB schemes has fallen to virtually nothing. So I think that's played a factor. And I think government intervention might be necessary to help reverse that trend in some way. You know, a bit like the Ross Gooby in the 1960s and 70s, basically getting people back into equities, because it's one of the only ways over the long term you probably base inflation. So I think that's been an issue. That can be fixed, but it requires some intervention. I think on the broader stage, international investors post-Brexit, the UK is perceived as a bad place to invest and, and uncertain. People are starting to see the valuation opportunity. You know, we've had some incoming interest from people in the States who know us quite well. You know, on individual stocks or our style, and you talk them through the numbers. You know, the in our presentation again, the UK equity market is the only major equity market in the world trading on a significant discount to the Quest valuation that Canaccord puts together, which is a cash flow based valuation. It's trading on about a twenty percent discount. The US equities, despite the fall from grace last year, they're still trading on a massive premium, about sixty odd percent premium to these these Quest. DCF based fair values and well above long term averages. So, what you tend to find is a, there's a laggy indication of venture capital we will reallocate. In the meantime, private equity bids are seeing the opportunity in buying companies up. We've had 14 bids for small mid cap companies so far this year, which is the highest pace I can remember in 17 years of doing this. Right. What sort of premiums are they paying on average? Well, the lowest premium, I think, uh, is probably 35, 40. Some of the premiums are way above that. And the number of them are contested. I'm, I'm looking through the list today. So about a third of those are actually bidding walls, potentially between PE houses. And this is an environment where everyone thought debt was going to be more difficult to get. But this comes back to the flows and the capital allocation perspective. Lots of money in private equity funds that needs to be spent, whilst on the public market side, the people saying those assets, having their clients taking their money away at valuations 30% lower. It's, it's just a bizarre situation. It will we'll eventually correct, but what we need to see is outflows for UK equity funds stopping. You'll probably see a 10 to 15% re-rating, maybe a bit more, 
And if that neutral situation starts to trickle to inflows, then we're really off to the races. And you'll see something like two that, you know, the latter part of 2009, Q2, Q3, 2009. Because if you haven't sold by now, you're not going to sell on a five or 10% increase in the market. You're going to hold on to your shares. And the liquidity, bad liquidity works in both directions. Yeah. So you will get a kind of geared effect if that happens. So absolutely right. Yeah. But in terms of the valuations in the companies you're seeing, I mean, they're still very low and in absolute terms. I mean, are they as bad as they got in 2009? Not quite as bad. We haven't seen capitulation across the market. But if any company has a bit of a wobble, the fundamental valuation gets literally thrown out of the window. So NCC, you talked about, very good example. They've had some trading issues in their assurance business. It had its record month trading actually in November. And what they've seen is progressive weakness in their US client base particularly the big tech companies who basically came back from Christmas and decided to really go at procurement alongside quite a heavy reduction in workforce, which is well publicised. And anybody supplying to those clients has really had quite a tough time. And the problem is, for instance, coming so late in their financial year, they don't have the time to do anything to counterbalance that particular weakness in that client base. So the news was really badly received by the market and the shares fell very, very materially. At one point, actually, the day of the profit warning, we bought shares. We told up a position buying quite a bit of that ATP. NCC has also announced it's saying it's assurance division, which is the lower growth, less sexy part of the business. We think that business alone is worth 70, possibly even 75p a share. So effectively, you're getting the cybersecurity business, which has 300 million of revenue, almost for free. Yeah, because the but shares people's... are about 105 or 106 people, something like that at the moment, yeah. Yeah, so, so just people just decide we just don't want to own this now. Uh, and that sometimes provides an opportunity. Yeah. Well, well, without intruding on private grief here, I mean, you might have said, well, we could have anticipated what would happen to the US tech companies. You're confident it's, uh, it's not a fault of analysis on your part. It's just uh, an extreme market reaction to a, a bump in the road for the company, should we say? Yeah, absolutely. So I think we've looked at it again to re-underwritten our investment case. And we believe this is a blip as opposed to something fundamentally wrong with the company or its proposition. Now, the services market, the cyber does move quite quickly. There's a relatively new chief exec who was already, I think, had spotted the over-dependence on the US client base and had started to diversify and work out how to do that. It's just the time of this is quite unfortunate. It's worth putting in perspective. A lot of the stuff the business does is, is government related and for those who listeners who are familiar with the sector, the demand is very, very material there. I mean, NCC's government business is growing at 30% a year in cyber at the moment. And there was the conference in Northern Ireland last week. And there's a lot of commentary about the need to protect critical infrastructure from the risk of cyber attacks from semi-authorised people affiliated with people who don't like Ukraine. And um, there is a real demand for this. So I think we definitely see it as a blip in the road. There's a lot of value in that company. The financial returns won't reflect that this year, but we're very confident that we won't just get our money back on this one, that we'll make an acceptable return over the next two to three years. I mean, you've been uh, very diligent in buying back shares uh, when you go to a discount and so on. In terms of the rating of, of Odyssean, given this sort of setback, uh, you're still plugging away at that? Yeah, absolutely. I think we're on a premium. And in fact, actually, the day of our, I think, uh, webinar, actually, we issued some shares as well. So, you know, we think it's it's an interesting time. You're never in a situation where there is no risk, but we think on a three-year view, we're not pricing our money at 15% returns at the moment. We think you know, the potential returns from here are much higher than 15%. And uh, I think as we've said, when you look back in three or five years, this will be a good vintage. It's just it might be a bit choppy this year. 
So that brings us to the end of this week's uh, podcast. Next week, we uh, have the coronation, as I previously mentioned, and we also move into May. Uh, it'll be time to see whether the old adage of sell in May and go away is valid again this year, and if so, what impact that will have on the investment trust sector. Will we start to see some change in the overall level of discounts as we move further forward? And will we see the UK market continue to show some signs of life? That's the big question for the rest of the year. Thank you all for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust Podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.